From New York, this is Democracy Now! In the coming days, I expect to speak with Russian Foreign Minister Lavrov for the first time since the war began. I plan to raise an issue that's a top priority for us. The release of Americans Paul Whelan and Brittany Griner have been wrongly detained and must be allowed to come home. As Secretary of State Tony Blinken says he expects to talk soon with his Russian counterpart, we'll take an in-depth look at the war in Ukraine, which has entered its sixth month. We'll speak to a Ukrainian feminist sociologist who fled to Germany with her children, as well as a Russian historian who left his home in Moscow after the war. Then don't cancel Russian culture. That's the headline of a new article by Nina Khrushcheva, the granddaughter of the former Soviet premier Nikita Khrushchev. And we'll look at the devastating economic and humanitarian crisis facing Afghanistan. I also urge the international community not to forget the people of Afghanistan, who continue to face some of the most significant challenges. Since the Taliban takeover, the country has faced an economic, financial and humanitarian crisis of unprecedented scale. All that and more, coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin's agreed to a deal with Democratic leaders on a major domestic policy bill to combat climate change and lower health care costs while paying down the national debt. The agreement caps nearly two years of negotiations that saw Manchin repeatedly foil efforts by fellow Democrats in the narrowly divided Senate to pass President Biden's legislative agenda. The emerging deal seeks to slash U.S. emissions by roughly 40 percent through the end of the decade at a cost of around $400 billion, with tax credits and rebates for home insulation, solar panels, electric vehicles, and more. The bill would also place a $2,000 cap on seniors' annual out-of-pocket costs for prescription drugs and would, for the first time, allow Medicare to negotiate the price of drugs. The agreement with Manchin does not include a tax increase on wealthy Americans. Instead, it seeks to raise about three-quarters of a trillion dollars over the next decade through a 15 percent minimum tax on corporations. It's not known whether another conservative Democrat, Arizona's Kirsten Cinema, will support the deal. On Capitol Hill, Progressive Democrats joined climate activists Wednesday to demand President Biden declare a national climate emergency. This is Ashley Engel, an activist with the absentee Shawnee tribe of Oklahoma. As you may know, Oklahoma is firmly situated on the front lines of the climate crisis and fossil fuel extraction. And currently, we are the epicenter of the nation's heat wave. In fact, we've experienced nearly a month straight of temperatures well over 100 degrees, with only hotter days ahead. Wildfires, drought, and man-made earthquakes brought about by fracking that are destroying our already impa impacted and neglected infrastructure. With a dependency on an industry that endangers us, it couldn't be clearer that we need a just transition now. This comes as parts of North America and Europe continue to experience record temperatures. Meteorologists now say scorching heat in the Pacific Northwest is expected to last longer than initially predicted, with triple-digit highs forecast again today in some areas. 
The Federal Reserve voted Wednesday to raise interest rates by three-quarters of a percentage point. It's the fourth time this year the Fed has raised its benchmark federal funds rate, citing inflation rates that have surged to their highest levels in 40 years. Fed Chair Jerome Powell on Wednesday dismissed the concerns of economists who say the Fed's aggressive moves to raise the cost of borrowing will lead to higher unemployment and economic pain for working families. I do not think the U.S. is currently in a recession. Um, and the reason is there are just too many areas of the economy that are that are performing, uh, you know, too well. A former top adviser to President Trump's chief of staff has recently cooperated with the Justice Department investigation into the events of January 6th. That's according to ABC, which broke news of Cassidy Hutchinson's cooperation Wednesday as the Justice Department signals it's investigating former President Trump as part of its criminal probe into efforts to overturn the 2020 election. Also Wednesday, the Justice Department said it has a obtained warrants to search the phone of Trump lawyer John Eastman. Eastman was among speakers at the infamous rally near the White House on January 6th, where Trump encouraged his supporters to march on the Capitol, even though he knew many were armed. Russia's military has launched strikes on Ukraine's capital region for the first time in weeks. A Ukrainian military official said six Russian cruise missiles struck a military base north of Kiev overnight. Elsewhere, there were competing claims over whether Russia had seized a massive coal-fired power plant in Ukraine's east. Meanwhile, the Biden administration's revealed its estimate of the number of casualties Russia's military has suffered since it invaded Ukraine in February, saying 75,000 Russian troops have been killed or injured in the violence. CNN reports the Biden administration's offer to exchange jailed Russian weapons dealer Victor Boot for U.S. citizens Brittany Griner, the NBA star, and Paul Whelan. Boot is an infamous arms trafficker known by U.S. authorities as the Merchant of Death. In 2012, he was sentenced to 25 years in a U.S. prison for conspiracy to commit terrorism. In Washington, D.C., Secretary of State Tony Blinken said Wednesday he expects to speak soon with Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov for the first time since the war began and will raise the cases of Whelan and WNBA star Griner. We put a substantial proposal on the table weeks ago to facilitate the release. Our governments have communicated repeatedly and directly on that proposal. And I'll use the conversation to follow up personally. North Korean leader Kim Jong-un said Thursday his nation is ready to respond with nuclear weapons if provoked by the United States or its allies. Kim's remarks came during a massive ceremony in Pyongyang marking the anniversary of the 1953 armistice that ended hostilities in the Korean War. Our armed forces are thoroughly prepared to respond to any crisis, and our state's nuclear war deterrence is also fully ready to mobilize its absolute strength faithfully, accurately, and promptly to its mission. Kim also blasted South Korea's new president, Yoon Suk-yeol, saying he was pushing the Korean peninsula to the brink of war. His comments came as U.S. and South Korean officials said the North is preparing to carry out its first nuclear weapons test since 2017. President Biden says he's recovered from COVID-19 and will resume his normal schedule. Biden spoke from the Rose Garden Wednesday, where he encouraged people to get vaccinated and boosted and to wear masks in public indoor settings. Here's the bottom line. 
when my predecessor got COVID, he had to get helicoptered to Walter Reed Medical Center. He was severely ill. Thankfully, he recovered. When I got COVID, I worked from upstairs of the White House and the offices upstairs and uh, for the, that five-day period. The difference is vaccinations, of course. Nearly all U.S. states have seen steady increases in daily COVID-19 cases and hospitalizations over the past two weeks. Judges in North Dakota and Wyoming Wednesday temporarily blocked the enforcement of trigger bans on abortion, enabling reproductive health providers in those states to resume services after the Supreme Court's decision in June, striking down Roe v. Wade. Meanwhile, the West Virginia House of Delegates has approved a bill to ban nearly all abortions. The bill passed with the support of three-quarters of lawmakers. It now moves to West Virginia State Senate for consideration. A bill that would enshrine the right to same-sex and interracial marriage into federal law, the Respect for Marriage Act, is nearing a vote in the Senate. The legislation would repeal the 1996 Defense of Marriage Act, or DOMA, and require states to extend full faith and credit to a marriage between any two people, regardless of sex, race, ethnicity, or national origin. House lawmakers approved the measure last week. Among those voting against it was Pennsylvania Republican Congressman Glenn Thompson, whose no vote— against same-sex marriage came just days before he attended his gay son's same-sex wedding. A grand jury in Illinois has indicted the man accused of opening fire on a 4th of July parade in Highland Park, killing seven people. 21-year-old Robert Cremo is charged with 117 felonies over the attack, which also left more than 30 people wounded. The indictments came as Democrats on Capitol Hill grilled the CEOs of U.S. gunmakers Daniel Defense and Ruger Firearms over their role in U.S. mass shootings. House Oversight Chair Carolyn Maloney said an investigation by our committee found major gun manufacturers have raked in over $1 billion in revenue from selling military-style assault weapons to civilians. Our investigation also found that gun manufacturers use dangerous marketing tactics to sell assault weapons to the public. That includes marketing to children, preying on young men's insecurities, and even appealing to violent white supremacists. Finally, we found that even as guns kill more Americans than ever, none of those companies take even best basic steps to monitor the deaths and injuries caused by their products. And in Minnesota, a federal judge has sentenced former Minneapolis police officers J. Alexander King and Tutau for violating the civil rights of George Floyd. King received a three-year sentence, while Tao was given a three-and-a-half-year prison term. Both officers were convicted in February of failing to come to Floyd's aid as their colleague Derek Chauvin kneeled on his neck for over nine minutes, killing him. King and Tu still face Minnesota state charges of aiding and abetting murder in a trial scheduled for January. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman, joined by Democracy Now! co-host Nermeen Sheikh. Hi, Nermeen. Hi, Amy, and welcome to our listeners and viewers across the country and around the world. Secretary of State Tony Blinkens announced he expects to talk soon with Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov for the first time since Russia invaded Ukraine five months ago. Blinken said the call will focus on a possible swap to free two jailed Americans, the basketball superstar Brittany Griner and Paul Whelan.
CNN reports the Biden administration's offered to free jailed Russian weapons dealer Victor Boot. The Kremlin says no deal has yet been reached. Blinken said the call with Lavrov will focus on the possible prisoner swap, not the war in Ukraine. I call the foreign minister Lavrov will not be a negotiation about Ukraine. Any negotiation regarding Ukraine is for its government and people to determine. As we said from the beginning, nothing about Ukraine without Ukraine. On the battlefront, Ukraine is preparing to launch a counteroffensive to retake the southern city of Kherson, which has been occupied by Russia for months. In recent days, Ukrainian forces have fired U.S.-provided long-range artillery to damage at least three bridges in Kherson in an attempt to cut off Russian troops. Meanwhile, Russia's launched missile strikes from Belarus today on several targets in northern Ukraine, including the region of Chernyiv and areas outside of Kyiv. The Russian strikes come a week after Russia's foreign minister, Sergei Lavrov, said the Kremlin's seeking to seize more land in Ukraine than just the eastern Donbass region. To talk more about the war in Ukraine, we're joined by Oksana Duchak. She is a Ukrainian feminist and Marxist sociologist, co-editor of the left Ukrainian journal uh, Commons. She fled her home in Kiev with her two children the day Russia invaded and is joining us from Leipzig, Germany. Her husband remained. Uh, Oksana Duchak, thank you for joining us. Can you talk about the situation in Ukraine um, and why you left, but what you understand what's happening now? Uh, yes, good morning, I think. Uh, I'm glad to be here. Thank you for inviting. Um, so the situation in Ukraine is, of course, very complicated for months already now. Uh, and, uh, yeah, I'm among those who left the countries and the a number of uh, you know, both internally displaced people and refugees from Ukraine is, like, uh, um, unseen probably in the recent European history. So the regional situation is generally very difficult. Uh, I personally left for various reasons, but also, of course, for, for fear for my life and life of my children uh, and um, for inability to live under the constant pressure of fear, which uh, you have with uh, daily strike, strikes and daily uh, sirens like, and warnings about the possibility, possibility of strike. Uh, currently, I'm trying to, to be engaged in a numerous way to be helpful, at least from the distance. And many of my uh, comrades back in Ukraine, they are doing their, all they can, actually, to, to support um, the resistance of Ukrainian society. Uh, some of them are uh, either doing some volunteer and fundraising for civilians, evacuating people from dangerous zones and providing them with humanitarian relief. Uh, some of them joined the military force of Ukraine. Some of them are supporting military force of Ukraine by providing uh, protective equipment, medicines, and uh, things like that. But uh, in any way, like um, many people in Ukraine do it, and I'm, yeah, and um, the majority of leftists has also joined this um, common effort of the society. Uh, Oksana, could you uh, uh, comment on what you think, uh, what kind of support the international community, Europe, uh, the U.S., uh, have been providing and what you would like to see more of? 
Well, of course, we see the unprecedented level of support for refugees, which is uh, also um, raises a lot of questions about why this uh, level of uh, support was never applied to people fleeing other regions uh, with uh, wars, civil wars, or other like disastrous uh, situations. But in terms of um, Ukrainian refugees, of course, the support is now uh, well. It's uh, it varies from country to country because uh, some countries they don't have necessary resources to provide extensive support, or they don't see it possible. Uh, some are providing far more support, of course, than others. But it's also the question to the inequality of countries inside the European Union and other uh, non-European Union countries of the region. Uh, on the other hand, there is of course uh, military support. Uh, which, uh, to my extent, is uh, uh, should go on, and um, there is a support on the side of the economic sanctions against Russia, uh, which I still find not um, quite satisfactory because the question of uh, the main source of. Um, export of Russia, like uh, exporting fossil fuels, it's still under the big question whether this uh, sector of Russian economy will uh, be under the sanction, a substantial sanction, and when it will happen. Uh, so that's what I see from uh, the position, and I know that there are a lot of discussions in, um, between like different leftist groups and movements uh, to which extent this support is uh, necessary or desirable, but as a, being Ukrainian leftist and supporting Ukrainian resistance against imperial invasion and the Ukrainian resistance for self-determination of Ukrainian society, I, of course, find this support necessary. And Oksana, I want to uh, go to an article that you wrote. You co-authored a text uh, earlier this month that was published earlier this month in the journal that you co-edit, Commons. Uh, the article was really a manifesto called The Right to Resist, a Feminist Manifesto. And I'll just read a short excerpt of what you wrote. We feminists from Ukraine call on feminists around the world to stand in solidarity with the resistant movement of the Ukrainian people against the predatory imperialist war unleashed by the Russian Federation. War narratives often portray women as victims. However, in reality, women also play a key role in resistance movements, both at the front line and on the home front, from Algeria to Vietnam, from Syria to Palestine, from Kurdistan to Ukraine. Ukraine. Uh, so could you uh, talk about what prompted this statement and what a feminist solidarity would look like? Uh, well, this uh, statement was a collective effort of several Ukrainian left feminists, and it was uh, we tried to get as much support as possible, both from Ukrainian feminists, but also from international feminist community. Uh, and basically, it was a reaction to some um, problematic, highly problematic statements by um, various uh, participants and groups of the mostly Western feminist movement. Uh, explicitly, that was a reaction of one anti-war statement signed, if I remember correctly, by 150 people, uh, which is called Against the War. Uh, and it was uh, published in spring, like when the war started. And we found it extremely problematic, both in its content, um, but also by the very fact that it was not signed by a single Ukrainian uh, person. Uh, so we kind of felt that uh, Ukrainian voices, voices of Ukrainian feminists are basically not represented and uh, not listened to. And in order to uh, for them to be listened to, at least uh, 
there would be a possibility to, to, to hear them, you need to present these voices. And we decided to uh, write this text, the collective statement by Ukrainian feminists, and it was heavily supported, of course, from, um, from uh, Ukrainian feminists. Um, in basically, this statement um, criticizes the um, position taken by many on the uh, feminist movement globally, uh, which is that uh, basically uh, Ukrainian society either should not resist or uh, they are using this general uh, notion of that war is and militarism and war in general is something extremely patriarchal and we don't have to do anything with it as feminists, but you can easily state it if you are sitting in some safe place and uh, your life and life of your family and life of your communities is not affected by the war. But if it is uh, affected by the war and if uh, the very existence of these communities and people you relate to is threatened, of course, you cannot say like, okay, we just won't do anything and uh, yeah, just call for stop the war, which, uh, which doesn't make sense. This is a very abstract call. Uh, what uh, what does it mean to stop the war? How it should be stopped is a very um, like the, the questions which should be in the center uh, if you want to to give a political answer to the challenges uh, Ukrainian society is facing and uh, like regionally uh, region in general, not only Ukrainian society. So we decided to draft this paper as uh, under the motto of uh, the right to resist that Ukrainian society, Ukrainian activists, Ukrainian uh, feminists, Ukrainian left feminists and all the people concerned have the right to resist to the imperial aggression of Russia Federation. And we uh, kind of um, called international uh, global uh, feminist movement to, to support this right, to, to express solidarity with it and with the demands we were voicing in this manifesto. And have you been communicating, Oksana Duchak, with uh, uh, Russian feminists? Have you found common cause with them? And I'm wondering if you can also comment on this number that's come out of the U.S., not confirmed by Ukraine, not confirmed by Russia, but about 75,000 Russian soldiers dead in this war so far, which is just an astounding number, well more than the Russians died in 10 years of war in Afghanistan. Yes, um, we are communicating with Russian feminists, as it um, appeared so, and there are like historical reasons for that. That uh, Russian feminist movement is uh, now maybe the most like in the core of Russian anti-war resistance. Uh, so they, there is this feminist against war. Uh, initiative, which is a horizontal network of activists um, in, from various, like from Russia, but they are in various countries, both in Russia and in uh, European countries and other countries, um, and they are uh, trying to to make some kind of um, a rhetorical but also practical resistance to uh, Russian invasion in Ukraine. Uh, we are communicating with them. I also participated uh, uh, during some events uh, with them and some common, uh, yeah, some some discussions or. Panel discussions or presentations. So, in general, of course, yes, we do communicate with them. Unfortunately, I must say that my hopes for opposition against the war in Russian society would be far bigger, but it didn't happen. It's still very weak and very small. And here comes the number of 75 soldiers which were either killed or uh, injured uh, on the Russian side during the war. Uh, in general, 75,000, yes, according yes, 75, to the U.S. 
Yes, uh, of course, we don't know the exact number and we would not know them for quite a long. The, the war should like come to some logical end before some uh, figures, like reliable figures will come up. But of course, it, it is totally possible, like this figure, because yeah, many are missing, many, many are killed, many are injured and so on. And it's true that it's bigger than for, for all the com- bigger number of casualties and during all the campaign in Afghanistan. Um, I also have some hopes that in the long run, it can trigger some changes inside um, Russian society some changes, some opposition uh, to what is happening and what their government is doing. Because unfortunately now Russian society is very demobilized and it, uh, it is a result of the conscious politics of Russian government for years. So their, their aim, aim of the Putin regime was not to, to get support from the society, like active support, but just to demobilize, demobilize it to, uh, to the level that um, yeah, government can do whatever society will, will not resist. And of course there is, we all remember this story uh, which was happening during Chechen war in uh, Russia, uh, when there was a very active organization of a committee of soldiers' mothers uh, who were campaigning and uh, like and opposing government in which the, uh, in um, in this in that war in Chechen war. Uh, whether it will happen now, it is really hard to predict when this uh, losses of soldiers, when all these deaths and injuries will uh, start to, to, to accumulate and influence the, the Russian society to an extent. Uh, whether that, that will trigger something like that, like uh, the committee of soldiers' mothers, it is really hard to say. Because on the one hand, of course, such a huge... Uh, casualties cannot go unnoticed because it will um, it will um, trigger the only mechanism which uh, which works in a demobilized society and this mechanism is we act only when it concerns us personally or our families or our friends and if we are t- talking about soldiers killed of course they have families they have friends and they have communities in which they have been living so it can trigger some response but on the other hand um, you should also understand that the huge difference between the previous like large-scale uh, wars uh, which Russia or Soviet Union uh, uh, was involved, like Afghan war, like uh, uh, Chechen war, uh, those people, those soldiers, uh, they are not drafted soldiers. So they are not, uh, they are paid for, they are not conscripts. Uh, and uh, the, the biggest difference was that during Afghan war, it was uh, those were conscripts who were involved in that war and who were killed. So this is basically the same difference which you in the context of U.S., you can see uh, in, uh, if you compare uh, war in Vietnam and war in Iraq. So war in Vietnam, uh, it, it was constantly and massively opposed by um, a huge part of U.S. society because those were conscripts uh, who were fighting there, as far as I understand. And the war in Iraq, it of course, triggered also a lot of opposition, but um, this opposition very fastly like was demobilized because those were mostly contractual soldiers who were fighting in Iraq. It was also one of the factors. Of course, there were many others. So I think it, uh, in the long run, it will trigger some processes in Russian society, but it's also only in the long run, and um, those processes won't necessarily will be of the sufficient level to raise some um, visible and um, practical opposition inside this, the, the Russian society. And we're going to go to Moscow in a minute with Nina 
Khrushcheva, um, uh, as well as talk about overall what's happening in Russia. And as I talked about the number of Russian soldiers who died in Afghanistan, far under that 75,000 number, um, a million Afghan civilians died. Uh, could be double that during the Soviet occupation. Oksana Duchok, I want to thank you so much for being with us, feminist, Marxist, sociologist, co-editor of the Ukrainian journal Commons, uh, speaking to us from Leipzig, Germany. Uh, she fled her home in Kiev with her children the day Russia invaded. Next up, we will speak with a Russian historian who left his home in Moscow after the war, and we'll speak with Nina Khrushcheva. Coming up, stay with us. Sprung a leak, and the animals I've trapped all become my pets, and I'm living off of grass and the drippings from the ceiling. It's okay to eat fish, cause they. Something in the way by Nirvana. The WNBA superstar Brittany Griner was spotted wearing a Nirvana shirt in a recent court hearing in Russia, the focus of an international campaign to free her from Russian detention. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Nermeen Sheikh. As we continue to look at the war in Ukraine, now in its sixth month, we're joined by Ilya Budretskis. He's a Russian historian, political writer, author of the award-winning book Dissidents Among Dissidents, Ideology, Politics and the Left in Post-Soviet Russia. We first spoke to Ilya from Moscow in February, three weeks prior to the invasion. He's since left Russia amidst President Vladimir Putin's crackdown on Russian civil society. Ilya Bedraitskis, if you can talk about why you left and what do you think will end this war? And specifically, um, uh, as we talked to Oksana about Ukrainian and Russian society response, your understanding of what Russians are feeling now. So, uh, hello, thank you for having me here. Uh, I left Russia in a week after the start of the war. Uh, and uh, in fact, this week was, it was a terrible week. Uh, it was the moment when uh, in uh, the biggest cities, uh, the small or not so big, not so so important uh, anti-war demonstrations were brutally smashed uh, by the police. Uh, it was the week uh, when the, uh, all the independent, independent media, which still existed uh, in the country for that moment, uh, were, uh, were banned. Uh, and uh, it was the moment of the high... Um, uh, 
uh, of uh, the lack of uh, any predictability. Yes, so uh, there were expectations that uh, some general mobilization uh, for the army will be possible, that the borders will uh, will close, and uh, so on. So, um, <clears throat> in fact, uh, during uh, two months uh, after the war, uh, the government. Uh, implemented the huge uh, wave of repressions with the aim to um, uh, to destroy uh, any uh, any possible uh, resistance uh, any possible uh, anti-war uh, public uh, statements uh, and sentiments uh, in the Russian society so for now the um, uh, situation is uh, is quite uh, strange uh, because uh, uh, most of the people in Russia, they, 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 they were scared. Uh, they understand that uh, any expression of the disagreement uh, uh, with the war and and the regime uh, uh, will uh, will put them uh, at, at at risk. Uh, and at the same time, uh, they pretend. Uh, that uh, the situation somehow um, uh, come back to normal uh, because uh, there was not uh, such, a, uh, such a huge uh, decrease of the Russian economy as it was predicted in the beginning, uh, in the beginning of the war. Uh, and um, also because uh, it is just very kind of conformist uh, way of life that is uh, that that is very general for uh, for the modern uh, societies, but uh, but um, um, taken its extreme forms uh, in uh, Putin's Russia, where you know in some few hundred kilometers from your home uh, you have a full scare war uh, with uh, with the uh, with with the army of your um, country that started uh, this war and you pretend not uh, to follow the news uh, not to to disturb your normal way of life uh, with this uh, with with this terrifying information uh, Ilya, could you explain, I mean, you've said uh, 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 in a recent interview that uh, effectively now uh, there is no possibility of an opposition in Russia because its structures have been destroyed. So if you could elaborate on that and then the question of sanctions, the impact that sanctions have had on Russia, you've just said that the economy has not been as weakened as anticipated. Yeah, so uh, to the first question, in fact, uh, the recent two years um, were uh, used by Putin to prepare the society for uh, this, uh, this uh, uh, situation of uh, silence, of conformism, of, uh, of depolitization, of uh, lack of any resistance. Uh, because uh, if you remember, uh, in, uh, in the beginning of 2020, uh, the amendments to the Russian constitution were uh, implemented, and according to these uh, amendments, uh, the, uh, uh, Putin got a, a right uh, to stay in power for some you know, for some decade or even, uh, or even more. And in fact, uh, that was uh, that was important, decisive uh, moment. That was a kind of the uh, hidden coup d'état 
which uh, in fact uh, was realized uh, from the top uh, uh, of the Russian state. And then in uh, 2021, uh, the uh, main uh, structure of non-parliamentary opposition, uh, the movement of Alexei Navalny was totally destroyed. Uh, Alexei Navalny personally was was jailed. Uh, many of his uh, followers were uh, arrested or forced to, to leave uh, the country. So uh, in this way, you can say that to the beginning uh, of the war, uh, the you know the main. Uh, elements of the dictatorship uh, were already uh, already there. As for the uh, sanctions, uh, well, uh, in the recent uh, report by uh, IMF, International Monetary Fund, the um, expectation of the fall of the Russian economy to the beginning uh, to the uh, end of this year uh, would be some six percent. Uh, which is uh, less uh, that uh, than uh, it was uh, it was predicted uh, in the beginning of the war. So, in fact, uh, Russian economy, of course, will uh, will uh, lose uh, um, uh, will lose a lot. Uh, a lot of uh, workplaces uh, will be um, uh, will disappear. Uh, a lot of uh, um, a lot of people will uh, lose their uh, incomes because of the inflation and so on. But in fact, the uh, the main uh, uh, the main elements of the stability of the Russian economy uh, they are still on the place. Uh, that's the export of uh, gas and oil, and uh, we know that the gas prices uh, now are. You know, jumped <laughs> and they're uh, uh, as high as as never before in 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 the recent uh, decades. So, in this sense, uh, uh, Russia probably will not be shaken politically only because of the impact of uh, the sanctions. I will say that uh, probably the uh, the the uh, human cost. The, the cost of human lives, uh, the cost of the huge losses uh, uh, among the Russian soldiers uh, during this war uh, could be even more uh, important uh, reason uh, for uh, for uh, some protest feelings in Russian society. Uh, Ilya, finally, now we see uh, 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 Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov has been in uh, Africa meeting heads of state, uh, trying to uh, establish that, that Russia has not been entirely globally isolated. Now, you've drawn a distinction uh, between the Soviet Union of the Cold War period and Russia today saying, quote, during the Cold War, it could at least be said that the Soviet bloc, for all its obvious faults, was a bearer of ideas of social liberation and anti-colonial struggle. Today, we see the choice between the reactionary NATO bloc and the even more reactionary potential Russia-China bloc. So could you talk about that uh, specifically uh, with respect to this visit of Lavrov in which he is invoking this old uh, uh, Soviet uh, tendency or reputation for supporting uh, anti-colonial struggles in the countries where he is now, where he's been visiting? 
Uh, yeah, you you are very true. Uh, uh, that uh, you are very right. That uh, Putin, uh, Lavrov, uh, and uh, the Russian regime, uh, in general, uh, are trying to uh, to promote this kind of uh, anti-colonial rhetorics for now. So even before uh, Putin uh, made a speech uh, where he uh, said that. Uh, you have a, a so-called golden billion, uh, which uh, which rule uh, the earth uh, and uh, which provides some kind of unjust, unequal um, uh, relations between the developed countries uh, and, and and the West. And the aim of Russian military operation uh, in Ukraine is uh, to to change uh, this uh, this domination of the West. So um, uh, you have uh, uh, totally the same uh, the same message behind uh, Lavrov's uh, visit to uh, to the African states, uh, but uh, the main problem is uh, what kind of uh, alternative uh, Russia is uh, uh, is trying to propose by 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 all this. Uh, uh, all these uh, relations. So definitely, Russia itself not looks as the uh, as a, uh, kind of role model, uh, some alternative model uh, to the uh, to the Western uh, to the Western domination. And the um, uh, way uh, uh, in uh, in in uh, in what uh, Russia is uh, trying to gain uh, some. Uh, African countries, uh, for example, uh, for uh, for its side, is uh, is very cynical, is uh, is a pure commercial and uh, neoliberal. So they are just proposing some, uh, I don't know, discounts uh, for uh, for uh, uh, oil or uh, some discounts for the uh, for the weapons coming from Russia and uh, things like this. There are, there there is uh, nothing about the economic development. There is nothing about any uh, real uh, social and political alternative to the current order of things. Ilya Budraitskis, we want to thank you for being with us, Russian historian and political writer, author of Dissidents Among Dissidents, Ideology, Politics and Left in Post-Soviet Russia. We're not saying where he is. He left Russia after Putin invaded Ukraine. As we continue to look at the war in Ukraine, we're joined by Nina Khrushcheva, professor of international affairs at the New School, great-granddaughter of former Soviet premier Nikita Khrushchev, recently wrote a piece for Project Syndicate headlined, Don't Cancel Russian culture. Explain, Professor Khrushcheva. Hi. Uh, thank you. Well, it kind of goes, I think, with the theme of this program, uh, is that Russia outside of Russia and Russia inside of Russia. Um, I think we spoke on this program about, about this even earlier, that uh, if there is an onslaught on Russians indiscriminately, indiscriminately, if there is a demand to have collective responsibility, if there is a cancellation of concerts or uh, now it seems to be getting better, but taking off uh, uh, Tolstoy's books or other Russian writers' books from the shelves, uh, Ukrainian uh, authorities are now canceling all Russian culture, including their own Ukrainian-born Nikolai Gogol, who was a great Russian writer of the Ukrainian descent uh, and, quite, and, in fact, was quite critical or 
very critical of the Russian imperial system and corruption and so on. So it would be useful to read, in fact, for the Ukrainians. And so when there is all this uh, cultural humanitarian onslaught and canceling uh, athletes and sportsmen and others on Russia, it actually legitimizes Putin's regime because it does feel and it does appear that uh, what he does saying, I am trying to uh, protect us from uh, from the others who want to cancel us. In fact, it gives it validity. And therefore, my argument is don't cancel Russian culture because it plays into Putin's hands and punishes Russians collectively. And they will be the victims of that. And then they will also blame the West more than they blame the oppressive regime that is there in Russia or here in Russia because I'm in Moscow right now. And Nina, what about the fact uh, there have been several reports of Russia itself cancelling Russian culture? In other words, uh, there are theatre directors in Moscow, uh, multiple theatre directors who've been uh, fired, other artists and musicians who've been forced to flee the country, uh, not able to perform. What, what are you hearing about that? Absolutely. And I think that goes hand in hand. So uh, when Russians are being canceled by Russia and your previous guest was talking about this is just the whatever uh, semblance of opposition. It's not even opposition that all these theater directors that are now being fired. In fact, a lot of theater directors who created the theaters that they're being fired from, which is even during the you know, great times of the Cold War after Stalin, not during Stalin, but uh, during Khrushchev, for example, uh, even the oppositional theater was allowed to exist. I mean, they've been critics, they've been uh, screams by Khrushchev himself, but they allowed to continue to do uh, to do their work. And so now it's all disappeared. So for the Russians who stayed, uh, it is problematic because they're being oppressed heavily by the state, by the KGB state that is now in full bloom, basically the repressive machine uh, that is uh, uh, probably even pairs with being compared to, could be compared to to the Soviet days and also being canceled elsewhere, which, by the way, was not the case during the Cold War. Then Russian culture was welcomed because it was understood that it could be used as a tool against uh, against the Soviet regime. So absolutely. And, and it's, you know, one of the cynicism and sort of this horrible double speak of, um, of the authorities of the Kremlin is that, for example, uh, the uh, Jewish repatriation agency Sohut is now having difficulties and issues because they spoke against the, uh, the war. Uh, in Ukraine, and now they're being liquidated or called to be liquidated in Russia. And yet, uh, and one of the reasons is because they're supposedly responsible for the brain drain. So Russia kicks out, pushes out everybody who is the best and and the brightest and the most the most great thinkers. And at the same time, it blames others for uh, for this kind of repressions. So it is a double whammy. It's a it's a, you know, between the rock and the hard place that Russians are now uh, finding themselves in. And Nina Khrushcheva, you're in an unusual position. You're often in New York because you teach at the New School. But you're in Moscow now. And, uh, of course, you're Russian and the great granddaughter and adoptive granddaughter of uh, Nikita Khrushchev. Um, 
What has most surprised you that we don't get here, that your understanding as you spend time in Moscow of people's attitudes, including this latest astounding figure of the U.S. saying 75,000 Russians have died in Ukraine? Uh, well, I am. I, I know I'm not often in New York. I'm often in Moscow. I actually live in New York, so so that's that's important. And unlike others, I actually decided I'm going to go the other way. I'm going to come to Russia and see indeed what's happening because we read a lot of how it is and how people are afraid. And you know, as Sergei Lavrov, Russian foreign minister, said, "Well, we'll see." whether we will, you know, now reach out to the West because there are all these other options. And you spoke about it with previous guests, his trip to uh, to uh, Africa and, and other places. So I wanted to see, and what I found really remarkable is that uh, this pivot to not the West or whatever, whatever Russia is pivoting towards is really the Kremlin idea, but it's not the Russians' idea. And I haven't seen any pivots because I've been, uh, walking around looking for some Sino cafe or Sino restaurant or something, China, something, something. And it just continues to be all this uh, Western formulas that, that is part of Russian history um, in museums and everywhere. So it is uh, a very strange reality is that uh, Russia withdraws itself from its European history. And at the same time, it is part of the European history. Uh, the bizarre experience, which I thought I would I would see, but not to the extent that I actually did see it, is this, the war is going on. People are uh, cite the war as the, the most uh, reason for their depression and they're over 50% are being, uh, being depressed and, you know, all these troops are dying. At the same time, there is some idea of uh, they try to keep the idea of semblance of, of normalcy, the semblance of normalcy. So they go to restaurants. But the mood is of such despair. I've never, ever in my life, and I have grew up in the Soviet Union, I've never in my life felt that there's just a dark cloud uh, falling uh, falling over Russia. And all these great patriotic stories that come out on Russian TV, it's sort of the happy and wonderful, and we're just going to defeat all the enemies. Um, I lived in doublespeak world. I live in this... Um, kind of early in 1984, but I never, I do feel like I'm in dystopian fiction myself, and I just pinch myself every day thinking that I need to wake up because it can't be real. Nina Khrushcheva, I want to thank you for being with us, professor of international affairs at the New School, great-granddaughter of the former Soviet premier Nikita Khrushchev. We'll link to your piece in Project Syndicate, Don't Cancel Russian Culture. And also a clarification, the U.S. is estimating more than 75,000 Russian soldiers have been killed or injured in Ukraine. Next up, we go to Afghanistan to look at it, the devastating economic and humanitarian crisis there. Stay with us. Thank you. 
Iraq on the Afghan Rubab by Homayoun Sahki. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Nermeen Sheikh. As we turn to Afghanistan, where a new Amnesty International report documents the Taliban's suffocating crackdown on women and girls since it took control of the country with widespread detention and torture of those who protest the crackdown. One Taliban guard told a woman who was beaten in detention after protesting, you should have expected days like this. Whistleblowers in Taliban-run detention centers say the Taliban's also arresting women and girls on the charge of moral corruption for appearing in public without a male chaperone. Meanwhile, the Taliban's blocked most women and girls from access to education. The rates of child and forced marriage in Afghanistan are now surging. This comes as a staggering 95 percent of Afghans are facing food insecurity under Taliban rule, according to the U.N., with that number rising to almost 100 percent in households headed by women. For more, we go to Bilal Sarwari. He is an Afghan journalist who reported from Afghanistan for 20 years. He fled the country after the Taliban takeover a year ago, is now in Toronto. Uh, Bilal, welcome back to Democracy Now! If you can talk about, while you are in exile, um, you have been reporting extensively about your country. Um, we are approaching the first anniversary of the U.S. withdrawal and the Taliban takeover, what does your country look like? What is the most dire situation it is facing now? Well, Afghanistan under the Taliban is facing a number of crises. Uh, the economy has collapsed, obviously, uh, for a number of reasons. Uh, we are seeing uh, natural disasters from earthquake in Paktika and Khos provinces in southeastern Afghanistan, killing more than 1,000 Afghans, to flash floods and he heavy rain now for weeks, uh, you know, destroying uh, pomegranate gardens in the Argandab River Valley outside of Kandahar province, to destroying grapes in Zabal province. These are some of the most uh, remote areas in southern Afghanistan. Uh, so the economy is suffering at a village and district level. In provinces like Nuristan and Kunar in the east, uh, all the way up in the Page River Valley, uh, thousands of red goats, as they are known, uh, died uh, simply because of uh, heavy rain causing flash floods and landslides, also destroying important, uh, you know, grazing land for, for, for animals. And, and, and you have to simply feel heartbroken for the people of Afghanistan. But what we also see is an epic failure by the Taliban as the de facto rulers in terms of not stopping their crackdown against the Afghan people. Who are the victims of such crackdowns? The Afghan women. Who are the victims of such uh, crackdown or, or the Afghan uh, media family? Uh, Afghanistan has seen uh, you know, a situation where uh, the best and the bright have been forced to leave their country. So as a result, the Taliban continued to paint a rosy picture of Afghanistan uh, under uh, them, and they continuously uh, brag about how they've defeated the United States, how they've defeated the West, how uh, they are the victorious uh, forces. Uh, you know, and they don't really hide uh, their sort of ambitions as sort of an Islamist, uh, you know, uh, style uh, government, you know, from which uh, militant groups in the region, if not far away, are taking, uh, you know, great, great uh, inspirations.
And Bilal, to what extent do you think, if you could talk about the U.S. position uh, in particular with respect the effects of, of the sanctions, uh, American sanctions and European sanctions, and the $7 billion in assets that have been frozen by the U.S. Uh, since the Taliban took over? Well, we have to put this into the context when the United States uh, entered into an exit deal uh, with the Taliban, and they completely sidelined the previous government under uh, President Ashraf Ghani. And what in reality happened in Doha were efforts to start a peace process, which never sort of materialized. Uh, you know, a ceasefire, for example, never took place. And there was this famous quote by the former U.S. Uh, you know, special envoy Zalmay Khalilzad, where he said, Nothing is agreed until everything is agreed. Actually, what happened was the quite opposite. And as a result, the Taliban had a military victory. The United States, in my view, did end up punishing the Afghan people uh, by, you know, freezing the assets, which really contributed towards more problems. But it's also uh, for the Taliban to do well by the people of Afghanistan. It's also for the Taliban to do well uh, you know, in, in, in 21st century, the Taliban cannot, uh, you know, say that it's not our fault. I mean, we have to really remember the Taliban were a party uh, to this destructive war, uh, which really caused a lot of pain and suffering. And you also have to put uh, the Taliban as the de facto rulers uh, into the regional context. They have really failed to gain the trust of the regional countries. Pakistan, a, a major patron of, of the Taliban, you know, is really struggling uh, to cope with some of the realities. And in, in that context, I think the region also is, is paying a price because they either allowed a military takeover of, of Afghanistan or they helped it, specifically when you talk about uh, Pakistan or uh, countries like Iran. And do you see any of that support now waning? I mean, Imran Khan was ousted in Pakistan. He was a, a, a key supporter of the Taliban in Afghanistan. And also India. What is India's role now in, uh, in Afghanistan? Well, you have to look at the promises that the Taliban have made to Pakistan and TTP, the, the Pakistani Taliban. And I've been following that extremely closely uh, the TTP is extremely adamant that it wants a Sharia sort of system in Pakistan, that it blames the Pakistani establishment, the army and intelligence for all of the violence. And it does really appear uh, that the Taliban in Afghanistan might not be able to deliver the Pakistani Taliban on the plate, as was probably the expectation. It is also incredibly heartbreaking to witness this uh, assassination campaign in Pakistan as the talks are underway. This is what we experienced in Afghanistan, where assassinations were taking place when talks in Doha were taking place and no one was claiming any sort of responsibility. You spoke about India. Uh, India is Afghanistan's traditional and historical friend, but India did abandon Afghanistan. I think there's a lot of anger and disappointment among uh, many uh, who were extremely, you know, close with, with India, especially the former officials, members of the former security forces. Their visas, for example, were not, uh, you know, uh, issued or extended. We have 10 seconds, Bilal. We have 10 seconds. I didn't mean to interrupt you, just 10 seconds to wrap. Um, I, I think in that sense, India is seen uh, abandoning Afghanistan. But on the other hand, it's good that India is again back 
in Afghanistan. They have a presence and they continue to help the people of Afghanistan, whether it's with medicine or whether it's with, uh, you know, wheat for the people. We're going to do part two of this discussion and post online at democracynow.org. Bilal Sarwawi, Afghan journalist, uh, and also the latest news out of Reuters, U.S. and Taliban officials are talking about the possibility of unfreezing assets. I'm Amy Goodman with Nermeen Sheikh.